Why is it consistently Jesus Christ's name that is used in secular society for a curse? As we turn to Mark chapter 15, verses 16 and following, our study leader Dave Wordson challenges us to consider this. What comes out of our mouth when we are angry and upset reveals the reality of what is deep inside our personality, and this rebellious bitterness explains why there had to be a crucifixion. When they hit their thumb with a hammer, they say, Jesus Christ. Anybody heard that this week at work? And if somebody rooks them, and as the guy walks out of the office, they say, go to every one of you in your mind, fill in the blanks because you live in this world. If something else goes wrong, they say, damn, why is that all under the surface? Why are all those words so much on the tongue of so many people? Because there's one group of people that basically feel that as they go through life, that they're being rooked. They feel that God isn't coming through with them. And the cries of swearing, the cry of, if only God would do something. If we were just to have a real honest chat, some of you would say, listen, Dave, I'm here today because I'd really like God to do something. You see, if God would just talk in an audible voice, if there would just be one time where God said, David, like he did with Samuel. David. And I could say, who art thou? And he would say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then I would believe. Or if maybe, you know, I could be thrown into a fiery furnace, perish the thought. But if I could get thrown in the fiery furnace and the Son of God himself would come and walk in those flames with me, then I would believe. You see, if only God would do something. If God would only make it easier. But God doesn't. Most of us don't have the bright, shining light of the Damascus Road that says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, that forever changes our life. We want to talk about why. Why God doesn't just always invade us with his omnipotent power and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt with good eye contact, good ear contact, total visual representation, why God doesn't make it absolutely clear beyond a shot of a doubt by just knocking you down with his power, why God doesn't do that. Now there's one group because God doesn't do that that gets really angry. And so you might come on a Sunday morning, but basically you go through life and you're angry, you're bitter, you cuss under your breath. If you're a good church-going person, you don't do it so much out loud, although it slips out every once in a while. But basically, underneath the surface, you're bitter. Basically, you're bitter at God because you're saying, God, why don't you do something? Why don't you deliver me from the problems? Life is a bad deal. How can I be forgiving? How can I really let go of the hurts? I want you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 15, because Mark chapter 15, in fact, every one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, bring the climax of their writing. The whole story is about, and the soldiers led him away to be crucified. Now, when I talk to you about the crucifixion, it's very difficult 
to be able to get the impact of it. Because after 2,000 years of church history, after 317 AD, when Constantine, the Roman general, saw the sign of the cross in the sky, and he said, by this sign, conquer, since that moment, the cross, of Je the, cross the symbol of a cross, has become not a curse and a shame, it has become a golden medallion that we wear, that a woman will wear or a man will wear on a gold necklace. It's become an emblem. And we sing it's an emblem of suffering and shame. But it isn't. Not in our culture. It's much more a symbol of by this sign conquer. Usually thought about in terms of human conquering. And that's why it's so important for us to take time out and go back. The gospel records give us a chance to go back and interact with what eyewitnesses actually saw happening in the crucifixion. And I, what I believe happened in the crucifixion can be stated very simply in two phrases. Number one, we see the reality of human nature. As I look at the narrative of the cross, I see Dave Wurtzen in all of his shameful ugliness. And every one of you need to realize that. Samuel Beckett, the Irish writer that lived in Paris all of his life, said the entire human race is a woman that gives birth to a newborn baby standing over a grave. That's bitter. Why did he say that? Because one day while he was walking through the streets of Paris, a man jumped him and plunged a knife into his lung and punctured his lung and he almost died. He was able to have a conversation with that assailant. He said, why did you do this? Did you know me? Why did you attack me like this? He said, you just happened to be there. That's human nature. Cruelty, violence. But we also have in the cross of Christ another picture of a man who was fully human, but he was also God. But in his humanity, we see another picture, another reality of what human beings can be. And that phrase is, forgive them, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But unlike Ted Danson, it says to his son, son, be forgiving. This father, this son of God, tells me and gives me the power and gives me the answers so that I can really be forgiving. Now let's look first of all at the exposure of the human heart. And you might not have realized, and in fact, to be honest with you, until I started working on the preparation for the morning message, I didn't realize that one of the major presentations of the crucifixion is to present a series of mocking, a series of what we might say cussing Jesus out. One group after another enters in to this ridicule, this mocking, this, this hilarious, tragic comedy as they deal with the Son of God. It begins with the soldiers mocking Christ. The Roman soldiers, look at it in Mark chapter 15, 16 and following. The soldiers led Jesus away. This was right after Pilate had said, hand him over to be crucified. 
And the soldiers led him into the palace that is the praetorium. And we should think here, I think, of like an open courtyard. If you think of a fortress and around the outside of this open courtyard are the residences of the Antonio Fortress where Pilate, the Roman governor, was staying. These soldiers have their prisoner handed over to, him, to them. They lead him out into an open courtyard. A Roman soldier hollers out, Hey, get all the guys! Gather everybody in! Get everybody that's on duty out here! About 200 or so Roman soldiers gather around, and they do this. It says that the whole company of soldiers gathered and they put a purple robe on him. Probably one of the Roman soldiers had like a faded red cloak that in its faded condition began to resemble a little bit of the purple robe that a Roman Caesar would wear. The royal apparel, the royal tire of, of tire, purple in the ancient world, you all know, is the robe of the king. And so a Roman soldier rips this purple robe off of himself and puts it around Jesus. Another soldier reaches up into a tree and yanks down Palestinian thorns. My dad was in the Holy Land one day and his guide reached up into one of these thorn bushes and pulled down a string of thorns and the thorns were about that long. And this soldier crafts the laurel wreath of a Caesar. You've all seen pictures of Roman coins where you have this Caesar with a laurel wreath. And this soldier makes this crown and plunges it on the head of the Christ. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff because they also gave him the royal scepter. And they spit upon him. And falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and they put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. The first stage of the mockery. The royal scepter, the royal crown, the royal robe. And what are they mocking Jesus about? To these Roman soldiers, Jesus is just a common, everyday peasant. He's a Galilean insurrectionist who thought he could challenge the Roman authorities. I'm sure that the whispers had probably gone through the cohort that Pilate was trying to get rid of this difficult one, that the case was a little bit abnormal. But these soldiers with their battle-hardened cruelty, this is just another soldier. You say, Dave, that's so foreign. I would never do something like that. We don't have to look far in our modern world to realize that it's part of humanity to be cruel. We've seen pictures of mothers torn open with their pre-born children put up on their stomach. Cruelty. We say, oh, how horrible. How horrible. Let's get away from that. You can't get away from it. It's inside of you. It's inside of every single one of us. Given the right set of circumstances, do you ever, as a mom, get so uptight with your kids you'd like to kill them? And you say to the breast, I could kill these kids. Do we really mean it? What I ask you, where does that come from? The ones that I love the most, why is it that deep in my heart these cries can come up? I could kill them. Where does that come from? That's us. That's what human beings are really like. And all you have in the crucifixion of Christ is the tremendous x-ray power of God 
bringing things to a total exposure. This is the way people are. But notice what the enemies of Jesus say. They say, hail, just like they would say hail to, King, uh, to Caesar. Ave, Caesar. And here they're saying, Ave, the king of Israel. But I want you to notice something. Were they telling the truth? Yes, they were. Just like when you cuss and you say, Jesus Christ. You know what you just said? The truth. He is Jesus, the Savior. He is the Christ. When you say, I'll be, you might be damned. You might be. It might be the truth because that, that tremendous ejaculation of the human heart is spilling out the rebellion, the hatred, the violence against God that is part of human nature. It's a part of human nature that we are soft-coating in America today. We're not facing what's really going on. But the Roman soldiers are us. You've got to realize that. And the tragedy was that though they were mocking, though they were ridiculing, they were speaking the truth. The next phase, the soldiers lead him out. And a certain man, as, they were, as Jesus began to carry his cross, according to John's gospel, that he, Jesus did carry his cross, probably he carried the cross beam from the praetorium to the city gate of Jerusalem. And because of being flogged a couple times and being mocked not only by the high priest but also by Herod, he was crushed under the weight of the crossbeam. So the Roman soldiers conscripted Simon of Cyrene. And evidently Mark knew that his readers would know Alexander and Rufus. Verse 21, in Romans it talks about a Rufus, possibly the same one, although it's a common name. But it shows you that eyewitness kind of a feel. Here's a writer that's writing to us about the crucifixion that can say, hey, you know Simon that carried the cross of Christ. And remember, you know his sons, Alexander or Rufus. They're acquaintances of yours. It's one of those things you just quickly read over, but Mark is telling you, I know these events. I'm not far removed. I know the people that were involved. They are my my acquaintances, my friends, my associates. And so Simon was conscripted to carry the cross, and they forced him to carry it. They brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, the cranium. Might get it more across in English. Coming to a place called the cranium. I don't know whether it looked kind of like the outline of the rugged hill, whether it looked like a skull, or whether it had become a place where there were often executions, so there was the remains of criminals and their skulls out there, and it had become an unclean place. But the phrase, the skull, communicates this horrible, horrible tragedy of what's about to take place. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. We might think of that as, as being an act of kindness. When you think of Proverbs 31, it says, give mixed wine to one who is perishing. And yet, it also speaks in the prophetic literature and also in the Psalms about one that's given a bitter drink that's impossible to drink. I think in the light of what we're studying about the ridicule and the scoffing, I don't think that we should read compassion into these Roman soldiers because I don't see any other hints of compassion. So very possibly following the president of the Old Testament, what they do is give him a drink 
that would give the, the semblance of being uh, an intoxicant that would, that would anesthetize the terrible pain. But in reality, it's so bitter you can't even drink it because of the bitter herbs that they mixed with it. And so once again, we have the cruelty of these men as they crucify Christ. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. Just think of it. These men had just brutalized this man, punching him with a scepter over and over again. Think of what his head looks like, hitting him over and over again, bowing down before him in mockery. They offer him a drink that gives some uh, expectation that it will bring relief, but then in reality, it's impossible to drink it. And then in cold-heartedness, they throw dice at the foot of the cross because they're going to divide up his garments. What are we like? What are the Roman soldiers like? Well, mockery, brutality, and greed. As I look at the Roman soldiers, there's a part of Dave Wurtson that is just like that. And that's what's wrong with some of you. You're pretending. You're not facing what's genuinely inside of you. The brutality that can come out the violence that can be there, the greed. The incredible thing is that John tells us that, that the Old Testament had predicted they would divide his garments among them. And so this incredible drama as human nature is exposed in all of its awfulness is also exposing another hand, the hand of the ultimate writer who is bringing all these events together for a very special purpose. Now we're introduced to another group that mocks the Lord Jesus. We want to look at the Jewish leaders. I want you to look at Mark chapter 15, 31, and 32. It says, In the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. And the Gospels present the idea that you've got a crowd going by here and everyone's joining in the mockery. The soldiers are mocking. Now we have kind of a vignette of the Jewish leaders mocking him. Look what they say. He saved others. This is the Savior that we saw heal the blind, and we saw, them, we saw him heal cripples. We were at the pool of Bethesda when the man that had been down for 38 years was suddenly healed, and these Jewish leaders look at him and say, hey, this is the one that saved others. And they say this, but he can't save himself. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Once again, biting words of mockery. Can you imagine if you were on the cross and your enemies say, ha ha, look at that. You saved others. You were the great miracle worker. You're the great prophet. You had the audacity of saying that you're the Christ. The Christ is a great military conqueror. He's one that comes and defeats all the enemies of God. And you're running the jaws of the enemies of God. The very fact that you sit there helpless, hanging, not able to do anything, proves that you're not the Savior. It proves you're not the Messiah. If you're the Messiah, save yourself. You ever get gripped by the reality of those words? Tremendous irony is going on here. Divine irony. Because Jesus could not have saved himself and saved others. 
Remember I told you that we need to realize what's going on in our hearts. Some of you cry out, do something, Jesus, prove it to me. You know, if Jesus did, you would be lost forever. The reality of the matter is, as I talked to you, if Jesus suddenly appeared, if this Savior that hung helplessly on the cross, the reality, if that Savior suddenly materialized before you in all of his majestic, powerful glory of the transfiguration, some of you would be lost forever. You say, why? Because your heart is the heart of a Jewish leader, of a Roman soldier, of a sinner. And omnipotence, the powerful might of God, can judge that heart. But omnipotence cannot forgive that heart. You see, he saved others, but he can't save himself is the ultimate irony because if he comes down from the cross, the awful, violent, mocking, prideful human nature of those that stood at the feet of the cross would never be able to be melted, never be able to be crucified, never be able to be put into the pit of eternal judgment where it could be gone forever and man could become a new creation. If he is to save others, he cannot save himself. And as you listen to my voice today, if the Holy Spirit begins to speak at your heart, what needs to happen is you need to melt. You need to be at the foot of that cross and identify with what's really going on inside of my heart and your heart, and you need to melt. It's the only way that you can find life. You need to face the horror of what we really are. The mocking, the cussing, the rebellion, the bitterness. It's us. And Jesus presents himself in history as the suffering Savior to get you to break, to get you to face the truth, to get you to stop covering up. And if you'll weep, you don't have to weep, but you need to weep inside. That heart, that pride, that arrogance needs to melt. And you need to hang your head and say, it's me. That's what the Gospels are telling. The Jewish leaders spoke the truth far more than they knew. He could not save himself if he was to save others. The Jewish leaders went on to say, let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. If they saw what I've been teaching you, if they saw, they would have never been able to believe because they would have seen in hardened, arrogant, violent sinfulness. And when sin is face to face with the omnipotent righteousness of God, there's only condemnation. Jesus had given them many things to see. In his holy word, I challenge every one of you, you can go back and read the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John will give you seven signs that you can believe. 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ that we'll talk about in a couple weeks forever proves who Jesus is. There is evidence. There is credible historical eyewitness accounts. But that's not what's going to keep you or cause you to believe. It's much deeper than that. It's whether deep in your heart you'll humble yourself. You'll face the sin that's there. And you'll bow your head and you'll say, He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Jewish leaders mocked him. They were savoring their victory. They were laughing at his claim to be the king of Israel. Little did they know that he had become that ultimate suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. What about the crowd? We looked at the soldiers. We looked at the high priests and the Jewish leaders. What about the crowd? Lest anybody think I'm speaking in an anti-Semitic vein, because I'm not. The Jewish leaders are guilty of the death of Christ. The Roman soldiers are guilty of the death of Christ, as I taught you last week. And I'm guilty of the death of Christ. We're all guilty of the death of Christ, our sin. But look at the crowd. Look at verses 29 and 30. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. So, you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. That was brought up in his trial. You're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. Once again, they speak the truth. He is going to tear down the temple of his body. And in three days, a miracle far heavier than the reconstruction of Herod's wonder of the world. Jesus is going to reconstruct a corpse and make it live again. Jesus is going to cause a tremendous hope to be set afire on planet Earth that as my daddy grows old, I can enjoy him, I can minister to him as needed, I can learn from him, but when it comes to that tragic moment when I might lose him or he might lose me, Jesus is the great reconstructionist. And he'll take my daddy home. And I don't have to just look back at lifetimes of memories. I can look forward to eternities of tremendous expectations. That's what Jesus is saying. He's the one that can rebuild the temple, the resurrected Savior. And then we look at the thieves. And this is where the spotlight gets very intense because it's in the two thieves on the cross that we divide all humanity. I believe that in Mark's thinking that everybody, everybody is one or the other. The tremendous moving scene, and I think Luke gives us a little bit closer shot of it. So let's turn to Luke chapter 23, verse 32. Luke resumes his account of the criminals on the cross in verse 39. One of the criminals, these are insurrectionists, probably associates of Barabbas that had uh, murdered some people in mob violence and rebelling against the Romans. And one of these criminals that hung there hurled insults at him. He cursed him, in other words. Notice what he says. Aren't you the Messiah? You're the one they claim. I've heard you, man. I've, I've heard a little bit about this trial. I've heard about what they were trying you for. You claimed to be the king of Israel. Now, I might not be much of a Jew religiously, but I know one thing. If you're the Messiah, you're supposed to be a great conqueror. Why don't you get us out of this mess? 
Why don't you use your power to get me down out of this awful agony? I'm bitter at life. I'm bitter at dying. I'm bitter that I was caught. I'm bitter that I'm, that I'm, that I'm hanging here. If you're the Christ, do something. That's where half one group in the world, that's where they're at. They're saying, if there's a God, show us. If all this Jesus stuff is true, why didn't he just come out and tell me? And did you listen to him day after day in the office? They cuss him. Why? You don't realize the whole battle, wherever you go, in the office, entertainment, you go from a newscast where we've got a war on drugs to a big star who is praised for drugs, all in the same show, kind of back and forth, because that's what the world is. Why is it right in the middle of a movie we've got to have Jesus cussed? Because people are bitter. We're all bitter. And you know what you're saying? I don't deserve what I get. I don't deserve what's happening to me. You know what's wrong? You haven't faced the truth of your life. You're the thief on the cross that never found out how to be forgiven. And you could go right to your grave mocking and bitter, pretending. You're not always blaspheming. You're not always cruel. You're not always immoral. But why is it that not one of you would want me to put a flash of even the dreams that you have up on the wall. I would be horrified if God exposed what's in my subconscious mind. So would you. Why is that? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Not some, but all. People say, I come to church, I don't want to feel bad when I come to church, I want to feel good. I'm not putting you down, I'm not standing up here in front of you a little bit higher saying, you bad people, we're all like this. This is what I'm like. This is what you're like. It's the truth. What we desperately need to hear in America today is the simple truth. I praise God for a hovel the Czechoslovakian dissident that in a cell kept writing the truth about communism. He kept writing plays that mocked him. He kept writing brilliant novels that made communism a farce. Praise God for the truth. But we're not hearing a lot of truth sometimes in the church. And this thief can be us. Bitter. I don't deserve what I'm getting. If you're the powerful Messiah, get me out of this mess. Where it comes out in our own society is somebody that you love is in the hospital. Oh, Lord, I'm going to really serve you. I will please you. I will help you. Oh, please deliver my loved ones. So the Lord raises up your loved ones. What do you do after that? Andy Horner, a friend of mine, received Christ when he was 12 years old. He was in the Canadian Navy during World War II. Every time they went into battle and the Germans started shooting at him, he said, Oh, Jesus, I'll serve you. I'm going to go back to the faith of my mother. I will love you. Till they got back in safety again. Then he went out and drank like a fish again. Never changed his life. 
It wasn't until one Sunday morning when he heard, shared what we're sharing about now, the reality of human nature. And not under pressure, not under a gun, but by a free choice, his heart melted. And he said, oh, dear God, I'm a blaspheming, violent, immoral. I'm bitter. I'm angry. I'm angry about you. Because there's another thief on the cross that we close with today. And this is a precious man that I want to meet someday. It's going to be incredible to meet this man. He's hanging on the other side of the Son of God. At first, he joins in the cussing and the blaspheming, but something happens. And Luke writes it in very simple fashion in verse 40. But the other criminal rebuked him. He said, don't you fear God? Aren't you afraid of the righteous judgment of God? You see, that's a man that's beginning to get a hold of the truth. He knows for all have sinned and the wages of sin is death. And what this criminal is saying, he says, don't you realize that we are murderers, that we have taken human life, and that even the Old Testament Scripture says that a blood for blood, that we are hanging even on this bitter, agonizing, Persian-created death, we deserve to be hanging here because God is just. Because God is just. He says, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. This criminal realizes that the man hanging next to him is the only innocent man the only man that didn't do anything wrong. And a miracle happened. An incredible gift of God happened in this man's life because here is the Son of God whose head is all bashed in, thorns bleeding down his head, beat up, his back is just like just ribbons of flesh from the two or three floggings that he had. He's gasping for breath. And this thief says these words. Remember me. Remember me when I come into your kingdom. Now that is an incredible statement. A man is dying just like you on the most brutal means of execution that's ever been created. But by a miracle of faith, the man realizes, number one, I'm going to stop cussing. I'm going to stop mocking. I'm going to face the reality. I am getting what I deserve. And he looks at the Son of God and he realizes, Jesus, churches fail. Moms and dads fail. Sisters and brothers fail, employers fail, but Jesus on the central cross never, never failed. He has done nothing wrong. 
And from the depths of his soul, he says, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. From his Jewish background, he would be thinking, let me be like Daniel. Let me have it said of me like you did of Daniel. And I, I, the, the criminal is probably thinking, this is an incredible, I, I can't believe I'm even asking this, but help me to be one of the righteous ones like Daniel that in the last day, in the very last day, when God brings the resurrection, oh, please, Jesus, help me to be part of that Daniel resurrection when the righteous will be raised. And Jesus makes him a much better offer. He says, today, 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 you'll be with me in paradise, in heaven. Today, you're going to be with me in the kingdom of the Father. Two thieves, human nature. One thief, bitter. God, why don't you use your power to right the wrong and meet my needs and get me out of these jams? And when God doesn't do it, we get angry with him. So we cuss and we swear and we live our life as if God isn't even there. And another criminal who realizes, I deserve to die. This son of God didn't deserve to die. Remember me. You know, there's a lot of debate, a lot of debate in the church about how to be saved Lordship salvation debate and whether it's easy believism or not. I pray with all my heart that we've just gotten by all of that intricate debate. Because the thief on the cross, something happened deep inside of his life. And that has to happen in your life and in my life. And it has happened in my life. And I trust that it's happened in many of your life. I know that it has. But it's something that's very much at the center of your life. It's when you admit the reality of who you are. The blaspheming, the sinfulness. You see, you've got to stand at the foot of the cross. And you have to look at that cross. What I would challenge every one of you to do would challenge you to read the Synoptic Gospels and just try to go back there and let it melt heart. My eyes become wet because this is the most meaningful event that ever took place as far as my forgiveness is concerned. And I'm not being melodramatic. This is at the core of my life. It's what I was raised to believe and what has sustained me. It's what changed my dad's life. It's not religion. It is not just Christianity in a cultural sense. It is the heartbeat of reality. And when I talk about the reality of my sin, I can feel it inside of me. I can feel what God has delivered me from. And so tears come to my eyes. And some of you have different ways to express your emotions. But this scene should move you. If only the high priest would have stopped and thought about what was happening. And let it grip their hearts. They would have been changed. God in his grace gave them another opportunity just a few weeks later. And Peter looked at this very crowd and said, you pierced the Messiah. And 3,000 repented. It says in Luke's terms, they were pierced to the heart. And they said, what do we have to do to be saved? 
And just like the thief in the cross, the answer is, just say to Jesus, Jesus, remember me. I want to be yours. When you go to heaven, where he is today, remember me. That's what faith is. It's realizing you're dying. The thief on the cross had no illusions. He was dying. That day, he was going to be gone somewhere. And he looked to the one Savior and says, remember me. And the Savior, the only Savior that can teach you how to forgive, because he forgives you, told a murderer today, because of my shed blood, because I hung on the cross and took not just the Roman punishment, but the divine eternal punishment. I took it for you. You're going to be with me in heaven. That's why we're here today. We're here to rejoice. Jesus remembers us.